Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 60 for September 21st, 2014. On this week's show, fly sex, artificial sweeteners, and publishing your horrible failed research. It's going to be a very good episode today. <laughs> we have a full compliment again today. We've got Dr. Dell Jackson. He is a PhD in biomedical engineering. Howdy. Howdy. We've got Carolina Balkenbush. She is a registered dietitian in Las Vegas. Hola. Oh, oh, oh. Hola. Buenos dias, senorita. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Christian <laughs> Copley-Salem. Uh, he's a PhD graduate student, something or other, in cell molecular <laughs> pharmacology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yay. Yay. And I am Scott Barnett. I'm a PhD candidate in the same degree program as Christian, Molecular Pharmacology at UNR. Wow. There's our intro. How'd everyone, how's everyone doing? Well, I wanted to say this before we got started at all. We, because we're all kind of nerds, and a lot of our listeners are nerds, and I say that in the kindest, most flattering way possible, um, our, our interests sometimes delve into other areas other than our, our biosciences and whatnot. There's a really, really cool graphic uh, that shows the size of every major telescope that's been made in the last hundred years, and then ones that are planned to be built in the next twenty years. Um, I just went nerd all over this. I think it's super cool. Uh, I'll post it in the thing right now for you guys to look at. But uh, it will be in the show, show notes. If you go to betasandwich.com and look at today's episode, you'll see this. It's uh, if you like telescopes, you like space, anything. This is a super, super cool graphic. So, what's everyone do this week? Um. Uh, I did something interesting. Okay. Um, I went to San Francisco to listen to Sam Harris talk. Oh, that's right. Um, Which was pretty interesting because he's talking about, um, like, meditation and stuff. Um, And his new book is about meditation, and it was really interesting. I listened to it on tape when I went down there, and you should read it, and that's it. (laughs) <laughs> now sam harris i had to i had to pry this out of you he this is basically <laughs> you well, you speak as if this is like common knowledge i don't know sam harris. he uh he teaches meditation uh looking inward for for uh, atheists for non for non-religious people there's no hubbub about it it's just about making your brain work as good as it can is that accurate Correct. There's a lot of research on mindfulness meditation and changes in the frontal lobes and blah, blah, blah. Um, he actually doesn't teach meditation. He advocates meditation. Um, he is a neuroscientist from UCLA. So what he does is he studies belief formation through fMRI studies. That's what he does for a living. Uh-huh. And then he writes books. And he's written like four or five books Um one of his books was The Moral Landscape, where he argues for a scientific basis for morality, and the other one was Waking Up, which is the one he just wrote about using um, meditation to uh, re- figure out that free will doesn't exist. <laughs> and Scott and I could argue about free will all day. <laughs> yeah. well, that's really cool. So um, as an advocate, he basically says through these FMR- fMRI studies, he sees the benefits and personally sees the benefits. He's not like a guru that's going to teach you how to find your inner self, but he says these are all really important and uh, and you should go go explore it yourself ultimately. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, I could actually do next week. Hey, maybe I'll do that or sometime soon. I can talk about some of the research on it because it's biological. It's not um, psychology. It's biology. Right. So well, cool. I can talk about some of that. It might be fun. Sounds good. I like it. Um, Carolina, you were going to say something? Yes, I think that I had an equally deep and spiritual experience this week. We bought the Xbox One ah. and, <laughs> and the Just Dance game for it. Oh, and no. we've had hours of fun on that. It's amazing. It's funny. I went from immediately confused to understanding which was not with the Xbox One, but I'm like, I'm like, I can't imagine you sitting there playing like Call of Duty or Destiny and like destroying people. And then you said like Dance Dance Revolution or whatever. And I'm like, ah, I got it. It's so fantastic because it uh, the Connect will videotape you doing the performance, and then it'll show you clips at the end of some of your best dances. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, <laughs> kind of like in a in a sped up version. Uh-huh. So you look kind of like a little cartoon character gyrating your hips. It's pretty fantastic. Hilarious. Great for parties. <laughs> um, how about you guys? Um, I watched, so last Sunday after we, um, finished this, I watched the first ever, what they call a Formula E race. I've talked about it a few times. I'm, the only real sport that I'm really into is Formula One racing. And then this Formula E is Formula Electronic. They had the first ever Formula One race car using electronic engines. Um, an optimist would say this is the future of all motor, motor sports. A pessimist would say I just watched a glorified go-kart race. Um, truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, it's uh, it was interesting to watch. There was a, a, a wreck at the end that that um, I'm absolutely shocked uh, the, didn't kill the guy, and he ended up not just walking away, but running towards the guy who hit him and uh, almost starting a fight, which was pretty funny. But um, yeah, that was fun. I mean, it's interesting. It's uh, it's 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 the no noise. You know, when you're hearing these race cars and they're going by at twenty thousand RPM, and it's really interesting. It's just like. Like it just like, it's like Jetson car basically uh, as they go past you. And I don't know, it just kind of loses something to it. But uh, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, it is. I work out by the Las Vegas Motor Speedway now. And (laughs) there are frequently all kinds of races going on out there. When I was leaving on Friday, they had um, monster truck racing (laughs) going on. Sunday, 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 there's Sunday only. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't figure out if it was just really windy outside or what was going on. Because the whole day there was just... Like this dull sound of monster trucks jumping off of ramps and turning corners. Um, if I, yeah, I've always wanted to. I never got taken to one as a little kid. I don't know. I feel like uh, the kid in me would probably enjoy at least a couple hours at one of those things. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird seeing it. Yeah, it seems unreal. It's like you're watching it on TV, but it's real life. Delbert, you've been uh, you've been fairly quiet back there. Is that because you had a fairly quiet week? Uh, quite the opposite. It's just my week is full of things nobody really wants to hear about. <laughs> about my work and moving into a new house and preparing for the baby. See, this is the difference between a well-rounded person and a mild narcissist such as myself. Dell assumes nobody wants to hear about his boring week, whereas I had a boring week, but I could talk about it for an hour to everyone. <laughs> You're a well-rounded Dell. I'm telling you, that's a good thing. He's like, yeah, just normal stuff. I'd be like, all right, here's the deal. I went and bought a baby crib, and you guys are going to hear about this. So, uh, but you keep marching closer and closer to that uh, fateful date. So, uh, uh, keep us informed. We're all very excited for you. Thank you. Next week, not this week, but next week we'll have a baby. Wow, isn't wow. that nuts? So we probably we're, this this is it. We should we should drink you in because we're not going to hear from you for several weeks at least. I imagine. Yeah, the first few weeks will be pretty rough, but yeah. um, well, I do plan uh, on, if I, I could take two hours a week out of my week and uh, participate in this. Early congratulations, project. and uh, and of course, uh, you know when to record, so uh, anytime, drop on by. Oh, yeah. All right, so um, what do we got here? Should we, do we got anything else? I'm trying to look here. No? I guess just move on to Science Blast! <laughs> Science blast. <laughs> that was the best one ever. Well, I understand you've got your mind on other things, but you this do is have a, a job here. It's a group effort. This is this is what I, I, I pay a... you for, Dell. And if you're not going to pony up, <laughs> this was a group effort. I hated it. It was, and we were all quiet. Blast monkey. <laughs> Dance monkey. We're still waiting. Pew. I think, I think they call that like the bystander effect, you know, where everybody assumes somebody else is going to do something. Kitty Genovese. That is the one thing from my psychology degree that was nailed into me. Yes, she was murdered on the streets of New York City sometime in the 70s, uh, right in front of a giant apartment complex with like 30 people watching, and they all assumed someone else was going to call the cops, and it oh, took like 20 God. minutes for her to get murdered. She's like, please, someone call the police, help, blah, blah, blah. And it like 20 <laughs> minutes, and she was stabbed and bled out and died. And, and there was like 20 witnesses because they all like, oh, I just thought someone else would call. So very famous psychology case. Yeah, so that's what just happened. That is. we. It, Good it, job, it, guys. It was just as bad as a, it was someone getting gruesome. murdered. Yeah. It was <laughs> <gruesome>. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I want to go in order here. I want to hear all about some sweet, sweet fly loving. 
Fly loving. That's funny because when I said fly sex, Scott assumed I meant that flies were having sex, and I was talking about fly sexes and their biological designation. But that's fine. Um, we can sit and talk about fly porn. I mean, that's what you're really after. Do you, do you think that some flies have sex and some flies make love? Probably. Probably. I think that flies are totally conscious and have lots of fun and exciting sexual escapades. I am um, alone in front of, in a dark room in front of a computer screen. I was hoping for some fly porn. Right <laughs> Is that inappropriate? <laughs> these, these are the best times for Dharma to walk by. <laughs> oh, you should mention uh, uh, Joe in our, our, our uh, on Facebook wanted us to um, talk about uh, something with malaria and self destruction, all that fun stuff. Christian's going to do that. It just was a much bigger topic than we thought, and and you will you will be answered, Joe. Please next Christian, week continue. or yeah something okay so um everybody knows that at least on a purely biological level that there are distinct and obvious differences between male and female um biology structures um obviously we each have different sorts of genitals and so on and so forth um and most people who took basic biology or not still most is kind of common knowledge that women have two X chromosomes and men have two Y chromosomes. And no, wait, sorry. Um, that men have an X and a Y. I don't know why men have that two Y. Um, they can, but they don't usually. Um, anyways, so men are X and Y and women are XX. And it is basically true that all babies are kind of sort of predisposed to develop female unless the Y chromosome is there to intervene. Um, there's some complicated biology that goes on with that, but basically it's suppressing one, the growth of one set of, um, systems and enhancing another, and it goes from a female development to a male development. And that is pretty much assumed to be the cause of sexual differentiation in, in men or, uh, in humans and flies are basically the same thing. I think flies are the opposite where if you have an, an, a, a why you end up a female, um, but that doesn't really matter for this for this particular story. But there is there is the basically the same setup for flies. They have one genetic arrangement of X and Y makes a female, and one makes a male. Um, and they've always just assumed that that is what causes male and female to be different. However, recently, a team of researchers from I just lost it, and it's. Hughes Medical, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, um, have identified particular microRNA populations in flies that may actually affect their sexual development, not just during birth and development, but actually throughout their whole lives, which is kind of an interesting part of this. Um, microRNAs, for people who don't know or haven't listened to my spiel on it in an older episode, um, MicroRNAs are little regulatory RNAs that are produced um, by a different a different set of of DNA reading enzymes, but they're short. And what they do is they bind to other RNAs and make a double-stranded RNA at some in in this little region. And then they can knock down transcription or translation. Um, they can affect how genes are expressed. They can upregulate genes and viral genomes. There's all kinds of stuff that they can do. Um, but their basic mechanism of action is, is that they bind to another RNA molecule and make a double helix and, that, and do their effects that way. So it isn't exactly known how this occurs, but they found that um, if they remove a particular microRNA from these flies, they actually lose their sexual characteristics and in some cases switch sexual characteristics um, in the middle of their life, not just during development, but actually a full-grown male fly, if you mess with this microRNA, can switch to a female or be completely sexually ambiguous. So they almost become de-differentiated sexually if you remove this microRNA from a now, wait a second. 
Yeah. Does, I know. Do they do they have like sexual organs then that just like dis- disappear? <laughs> that's a, that's a like, great. It, are we pulling Marina Bobbitt here by taking <laughs> out a micro RNA? Like that's crazy. Um, I am Did way not Marina versed Bobbitt? in fly biology as much as I should anatomy at least. Um, but the exact words that they use are these microRNAs regulate um, sexual identity at the cellular and tissue level. So um, it, it's what's super interesting about this is it's not just it's not just the differentiation during the developmental phase, but this is like you said full-grown adults. this is tissue remodeling via mRNA, which correct. is I've never heard of before. So check this out. This is this is directly to Carolina's question. The team found that microRNAs are essential for sex determination even after an animal has grown to adulthood. They send signals that allow germ cells, i.e. eggs and sperm, to develop ensuring fertility and removing them switches which one they're producing. What? Yeah. Jeez. So they actually literally go from a male to a female reproductively. This and the worst thing that could ever happen is that they could find out this works in humans because because <laughs> could you imagine high schoolers getting a hold of this just screwing with each other <laughs> like <laughs> and just, dudes just like going by and like just stabbing someone in the neck with a syringe and being like ah you're a girl now and then running <laughs> I, I have a feeling that it, it wouldn't I don't think it's that simple in, in humans but um it wouldn't be surprising if there were more, if it was more complicated than just development that uh-uh. kept people. So, I mean, obviously Scott knows from taking reproductive pharmacology that you, um, you have a whole host of things that switch on and off at specific times during your life to develop your sexual characteristics, at least in a, like a, a phenotypic sort of personality brain state kind of way. Um, your sex drive, all of those things are determined by hormones. So if you start dosing a, a male human with estrogen, you get biology changes. You get significant changes. They can grow breasts. They can do all kinds of stuff. So it isn't, it isn't ridiculous to think that this happens, but this is just a new mechanism for flies, at least, that they have found that's completely different than anything they have seen before. It is pretty, pretty freaky. So unfortunately for Scott, the flies were not directly having sex, although they probably had sex at one time, so Scott can take heart. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> the, uh, oh, who just sent me this? Was that you, Christian? No. In this insect, females have penises and males have vaginas. I was just oh, sent an article. Else? Which which fly or insect is that? It uh, is a fly. This is a fly. Good times. Um, are, thanks, Are Del. you like a... Are you like a grandpa who sent you this? The name is right above it. <laughs> it's like my machine just made up it. My computer device. My machine made a picture. <laughs> How dare you? I'm I'm the technical expert on this show. That's <laughs> that's what I find so mysterious. Like. <laughs> this entire show, but you can't figure out how to use an instant uh, messaging service. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dell, can you tell us a story? Yes, I can. So, I this is less of a pure science story, so I hope it's appropriate for our our science podcast, but I think our audience will find it interesting. I did find it interesting. Brendan Nyhan, who is a political science professor at Dartmouth, and he's a New York Times contributor, has made a case to show rejected science in his September 19th article on New York Times, which we just put on the tweet box for Beta Sound Science Podcast. You can find the link there. Professor Nyhan claims that this would be a better return for the American taxpayers who spend over $30 billion in 2013 on basic science research. So that's the total for NIH, NSF, NASA, DOD, DOE, and all those groups that fund basic science research. He identifies that the academic publishing model is the core problem. And this is quoting him. He, he states, the intense competition for space in top journals creates strong pressures for novel, statistically significant effects. As a result, studies that do not turn out as planned 
or find no evidence of effects claimed in previous research often go unpublished, even though their findings can be important and informative. Um, Professor Nyham goes on to argue that papers that do get published um, show evidence of selective reporting, low, that is low statistical significance, because since there's such a push to get these cool, novel, interesting, headline-grabbing articles published, that sometimes the, the end values or the statistical significance is quite low in what they show. And he claims that this leads to the inability to re reproduce results, it's, which is a waste of research money, and ultimately results in what he says is a shaky knowledge base for science. So according to him, these problems of bias in academic publishing and failure to re reproduce results have been elevated to government officials. I was curious why a political scientist would be writing this article, but it turns out the... Uh, the headline, or the I guess the this portion of the New York Times is devoted to um, commenting and reporting on policymakers, and so he states that recently the Obama administration has has been questioning how the federal government can leverage its role as a significant funder of scientific research to most effectively address this replication crisis in science. And so a few ideas that have been put out, and I know we've talked about them on this show before, is to share data in some sort of replication archive. That I can and, get on board with. Yeah, and we've talked about the, you know, um, I guess it was a few months ago now, but we've talked about that's a great idea. It would give some transparency. You would upload all of your data there. Um, but there might be some results. There might be some pushback. People are, are sometimes very afraid to share their data. But... Um, but I think it's important. Uh, he also suggests that uh, trials should be registered before data collected. I think that this is less applicable to the type of research that we do. Christian, you were just talking about uh, a few weeks ago how you were putting together your grant proposal and your PI was so excited that she wanted to start doing those experiments right away. Well, imagine the bureaucratic hurdle being put in front of you that any time you wanted to go to the microscope or you know go to the bench top you had to report trials so in clinical trials where you're involving studies and psychology trials you know that's valid but I don't that doesn't apply to the majority of basic science research but the most interesting part of this um, was this professor Nyhan um, is suggesting a new he and his colleagues are suggesting a new publishing model and he describes it by saying that what would occur is that you would first ask journal editors and scientific peers to review study designs and analysis plans. So you would like make your proposal for your paper. You know, it's not like a, a large overarching grant proposal or anything along those lines, but for your paper. Man, aren't you serving two masters? Like you had to do the proposal <laughs> to even get the funding from the NIH. Now you have to get a, a journal to sign on before sure. you even run the experiments. Oh, I don't know about that. And, That's it, a terrible and, idea. and it could be yet another another uh, gatekeeper, right, to research. But so so there's, again, I think it's, I'm really glad that he put this idea out there. I think, you know, that we as a scientific community and more importantly, um, as an overall community of Americans, we need to figure out, you know, what we need so we do get, as he says, more bang for our buck. Uh, it could be cool, though, because then if they agree and, like, the editors and it's peer-reviewed and they say, like, yeah, that sounds like an interest. I want to know what the results of that experiment would be. Yeah, do it. Well, then, even if the results are negative... They have to publish them. Oh, because they've signed on regardless, irregard yeah. or just regardless of what happens, they're going to publish it because they liked your idea. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm glad he put this out here. I, you know, I think it would that be part I do like. Um, but then that would that would bring down the value of publishing something. Everything that's published was decided on before anything significant happens. And what if they find something completely different? A lot of times people will research something. They'll be like, this result doesn't make any damn sense. And then they'll come up with a completely different hypothesis, run with that, and end up publishing that because it was a totally novel and exciting discovery. Right. But would, you, would we have to stop doing that? And that's... If they've already, because then they'd have to stop and get approval again. So right in the middle of this set of experiments, they have to stop and get approval. And if they change direction again, That's even true. slightly, they may have to get approval again. I don't th again, like this is just one person's idea or a group of people's idea. I, I right. would argue that you would not every paper would have to be published like that, Christian. So not every single one. Like we're only going to publish it if you got like pre-approval. 
what you could do is get pre-approval, you know, commit to, especially as like a grad student, to put a paper together, you can commit to, you know, two years um, to collect the uh, data, to analyze it, and then publish it. This would be for like those papers. So you could say, hey, this is what we're doing. Does this sound good? Yes. Okay. So you could still publish that. But if you're right, like something could come up, you could find a whole new hypothesis. You could chase that down and you could still try to have that published without sort of this pre-approval. So it wouldn't be a requirement. It would just be, a, I guess, an option for you if you wanted to use An it. option's better. Than, I think yeah. a lot of this could be mitigated if we talk about impact factor. Impact factor, if you're not familiar with it, is, is essentially it's a ratio of how many people are referencing that uh, your individual work and, and, and the number of articles within a paper, and it, it gives uh, that journal clout. It says a lot of people, all the research being published in our journal, people are referencing it in their papers. Therefore, we publish very significant and important papers. It sounds great in theory. Uh, for a hundred reasons, the system is pretty broken, and it's universally generally not liked by most people. Yet, every time we go to publish a paper, the first thing you say is, oh, I'm, I'm publishing in PNAS. They've got a good, uh, you know, impact factor and stuff. So we still work on that theory. I think if, to what you were saying, everyone's trying to do these novel, giant, you know, important research that's going to change the world because they need to get it published and they need that wow factor. This could be, as I said, mitigated if we really stop pushing the impact factor and also encouraged more of these micro journals that are very highly specific to fields and encouraging people to publish in these small journals. That way, if you made a very small incremental gain within your field and the people within your field will care about it, it's getting published in these very small boutique journals, but it's not also looked at negatively either. People are, you know, because people are so focused on that impact factor. So... But that's a half the problem, I understand. And then we should also encourage them to publish the negative results alongside the positive results. Maybe that could, that could, there, there should be some sort of incentive for publishing your negative results too. I, I don't know what that would be, but yeah. right. Well, it would be a publication. It would be a contribution to you know scientific knowledge. But yeah. right now they don't accept that. And you know we've I think we've talked about that. He mentions a few cases where the inability to reproduce data is not a, you're not going to get published based upon that yeah it's uh it's certainly a good talking piece um maybe yeah. for some people it's a bit inside baseball if you're not actually doing research but uh for those of us who are i think it's it's just it's critical and fascinating so thank you it's it's a good is read it, though i'd encourage you to check it out i put the link in there i will post the link is it realistic that the uh, the whole framework of how publishing articles works would change it won't change not quickly. The way NIH funding is happening too, the way our grants get funded is a lot of people I know are hugely against it. It just doesn't, it's not a great way, but you just have this established massive system that has NIH gets $30 billion a year. That's a lot of money to be rolling around and a lot of power and people mm -hmm. in power don't want it to change because they benefited most from it. And uh, that's a little cynical because there are people who care a lot about making it the best it can be. But it, all these, anytime you have a lot of money with anything, things move very slowly. Yeah, but if, if that's why it's interesting that the Obama administration and hopefully future administrations are going to look at this. He gives a, uh, a link to... Um, this, I guess, request for information on part of the federal government. And if they get on board with this and they say, you know what, before every, if you have an NIH-funded study that you're going to do before everyone, you need to um, find a place for that 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 uh, paper or that research to go into. Does that make sense? It does. And if they make that a requirement, this will happen within a year. Like this, this change will happen because all research in this country, for the most part, ninety some percent is done on their dime. Hmm, that's a really good point. I think a change in policy like that would get the ball rolling. Talk yeah. to your senator. Talk to your senator. <laughs> right? I just did. Um, <laughs> so, uh, thank you. Um, for I guess our last kind of combined story here, Carolina are, are, are in a way going to tag team. We're going to discuss something that's a, 
article that just came out in Nature, and this is a Nature's pretty good about naming their articles to not be too crazy. This is artificial sweeteners induce glucose intolerance by altering the gut microbiota, and uh, uh, Jotham Suez Suez. I'm guessing is the first author. I'm so sorry for butchering your name. Um, oh my god! <laughs> it's a. Uh, uh, very, very interesting article here about uh, artificial sweeteners, um, more specifically saccharin, um, and, and we'll talk about that here for a minute because some, uh, and about how it affects um, your processing of glucose, essentially. So, this is a complicated st- story, and I, I will say um, I did not get this information by reading it through uh another website that did their interpretation Every, all these data i present here are absolutely directly from the paper so there's no there's no middleman here so if you disagree uh, this is uh, you won't be disagreeing with someone else so so the controversy comes from the fact that there are some papers in the past have reported benefits from these non-caloric artificial sweeteners um, such as uh, saccharin sucralose uh, there's a uh, several other and um, and some have posted results that there is very little glycemic response, which is how your body uh, uh, would digest these or, or a change how it metabolizes glucose. And there's very little, uh, it, this says there's very little happening there. Others demonstrated associations between these artificial sweeteners and weight gain, type 2 diabetes, others have not. So there's a lot of confusion among uh, about whether or not these artificial sweeteners are 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 doing ill for you or not. And a lot of that problem comes to the fact that um, while artificial sweeteners are eaten ubiquitously, even lean people, non-overweight people often eat them. Uh, uh, a lot of these studies look at already overweight people, people prone to type 2 diabetes, and it's, so it's hard to make these correlations. So, um, so as far as background, most of these artificial sweeteners pass through your human gastro intestinal tract without being digested that's their whole purpose they're they're non-bioavailable they go in your body it tastes sweet on your tongue your body has no means to use it for energy so it gets passed through your system Um, because it's not being digested at all it comes in contact with all of your intestinal microbiota Um, it's just it's just kind of washing over them and so so it kind of seems logical to look at the effect since they're not being metabolized this what these chemicals are doing on that and the experiment they did was is they looked at the effect of these artificial sweeteners on glucose homeostasis and they added basically co- commercial formulations initially of saccharin sucralose aspartame to the drinking water of 10 week old uh, CB57B16 mice, which are mice that are genetically predisposed to get diabetes. And as a control, they used glucose or sucrose. So they're either adding one of these artificial sweeteners to the water, or they're adding glucose and or sucrose, which is just a standard table sugar, right? Um, so I know Christian, one of the concerns he had was that that they were only focusing on saccharin. And that is, in a sense, true here. They found some initial positive results with all of these different artificial sweeteners. They found the highest change in microbiota, what was happening in the gut with saccharin. So they did all the rest of their experiments with saccharin. I understand that that, I don't know why they did that. It's not, they're only looking at three different artificial sweeteners. I feel that they could have done all the experiments with them. We're talking a few dozen more mice. You're trying to do a nature paper. This is hugely important. Why not look at the effects of all these down the road? And they didn't. They chose saccharin. For good or bad, that should be noted. I also think it's important to ask why they chose just those three. Right. Because those aren't the only artificial. Yeah, stevia is huge right now. I mean, if I was going to pick something that was blooming, I would pick that. Right. And I would be interested to see per use what is from highest to lowest like if saccharin was also tenfold more used than any other artificial sweetener i could see as a pilot study just looking at that per se but i don't know that's a good question i think it's on its way out uh saccharin yeah okay that's one of the oldest yeah you find you find uh sucralose and stevia in most products now so splenda splenda is sucralose the yellow packets and Uh saccharin is the pink packets like the sweet and low Right, right. Oh, and Stevie is the green packets. Sweet and, uh, so <laughs> and aspartame is blue. So, uh, so uh, almost all of this data is through saccharin. So at least keep that in mind uh, when when you're when you're seeing these results. Although, in their defense, a little bit, they did see change in the bi- microbiota in all of these sweeteners they tested. 
Um, Saccharin had the highest response, so they wanted to at least run with that to see if they were going to get significance later on. So moving forward, um, after 11 weeks on this glucose intolerance uh, or in, the, in this uh, of this diet, they saw glucose intolerance starting to take effect, and um, so. In this case, they did a couple different things. They took these these uh, genetically predisposed predisposed to diabetes mice. They gave them either a high fat diet or they gave them a uh, a lean diet. And um, and when they were and then they also took a separate group of mice, which were called Swiss Webster mice, which are these these kind of the starting point to breed all kinds of genes into mice. They're basically normal mice that 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 don't have any predisposition. So they were comparing these these mice that have predisposed or were predisposed to diabetes to normal mice and um, they were giving them saccharin versus sugar and after only five weeks comparing these two groups uh, they both saw significant effects as, as far as uh, the change in the microbiota uh, also of note fasting serum levels so when they're not eating at all and ins insulin intolerance were also similar for these mouse groups uh, versus the, the the artificial sweetener versus versus the non-artificial sweeteners so now, when they moved on to the next thing here, they said, okay, we're seeing an effect here. Um, let's see if it's actually, it's the gut microbiota that, that are being affected by the, the artificial sweeteners here. So what they did is they fed them gram-negative targeting broad-spectrum antibiotics, and they pretty much wiped out a lot of the bacteria in their gut here. And when they did this, the, they didn't see the results anymore. So it, they're, they were trying to make a correlation here, the fact that we're killing the, bi, the macro, we're killing the bacteria in your gut, we're feeding you the artificial sweeteners now, and we're not seeing this, uh, these negative, uh, these markers for, for glucose intolerance in your body. Um, therefore, we, there, we think it's going to be the bacteria that are playing a role here. And so this part I find interesting, though. So we've, we've talked about the fecal transplant in the past. As a matter of fact, it's been quite fun to talk about it several times they did fecal transplant so they took these mice that had uh they given the back to the antibiotics to they wiped out their, their 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 antibiotics or they wiped out their i'm sorry all the bacteria they did the fecal transplants and by transferring the microbiota from mice eating saccharin and glucose or glucose as the control into these normal uh, uh chow consuming germ-free mice after six days the mice who had received fecal transplants from the saccharin mice showed the exact same glucose intolerance, even though they'd never had shown glucose intolerance in the past here. So that to me is pretty interesting. It, that that That's the strongest evidence, I think, for that is the bacteria themselves that is causing this. Um, and it's all from the, the saccharin mice, um, mice who were fed saccharin. So... Um, what, what's going on here? What's actually happening when they when they dug down into this? And they found that saccharin consuming mice, uh, this in, this in, they they found that there was glycan degradation pathways were affected. Um, they found that uh, these glycans were fermented into short chain fatty acids, and these pathways enhanced energy harvest. Um, enrichment, which was also associated with obesity in humans, and they found all of these signaling pathways that that were common to both mice and humans. I mean, they also found like uh, pathways associated with type two diabetes, um, the metabolism of sucrose, fructose, mannose, uh, all these things were affected in a very similar way that, that you would get for, uh, for kind of a pro-diabetes type environment here. And this is all within the, within the, um, the saccharin fed mice versus the non saccharin fed mice here and they even looked at this outside of the animal model altogether they removed the feces from from the uh from the two groups of mice that control in the saccharin mice they cultured that and um they found uh in media to so just like growing normal cells and they also found these same um uh, changes in glucose metabolism glucose pathway that they did inside the mouse themselves there so there this is all pointing to the fact that it is the gut microbiome, all these bacteria in your gut that are causing this glucose intolerance here, uh, and it's not something else outside of that. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, that's nice. This is mice. Um, how about humans? Well, they actually looked at this too. So to study the effect of these artificial sweeteners on humans, they examined the relationship between long-term uh, artificial sweetener consumption, and this is based on questionnaires and stuff, which is the best they could do in this case, and various clinical parameters, and they did this in 381 non-diabetic individuals, and they found that 
uh, significant positive correlation between the artificial cons uh, sweetener consumption group and several of these exact same metabolic changes that they had seen in the mice, uh, including increased weight gain, waist to hip ratios, um, higher fasting, blood glucose levels, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, moreover, how do you get? Hold on, how do you get that from a questionnaire? I this I'm, I'm not being snarky. I just I literally don't know how you'd get that kind of data from a questionnaire. Oh, they the the questionnaire part was a self-reporting of artificial sweetener consumption. Oh, the diet part. The diet part. Okay, yeah, okay, and then they okay. they started looking at these individuals. They didn't say what was your blood glucose yesterday. Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> um. They also found that they found uh, in these people much higher levels of glycosylated hemoglobin, which indicated glucose concentrations, uh, which is a, it's a marker of your glucose con concentration over, over several months. And, uh, and these were significantly increased in the artificial sweetener group compared to the non-artificial sweetener group. Now, this group of data here is the overall least convincing. They desperately, I think, wanted to start making a correlation in humans because they knew it would get torn apart if it was only in mice here. They do make an interesting finding here in that they're seeing some of these same markers that they did in the saccharin mice in people who self-reported eating a lot of saccharin, but but it's this is by no means a, a conclusive uh, jump from going from mice to humans saying that this is exactly the same here. It's a, it's a nice, interesting starting point to take a new hypothesis and look more closely in humans. Um, they also tested in healthy people. They had it. They just took an N of seven, but they looked at seven people who reported that they, they, that they go out of their way to avoid all artificial sweeteners in any form. These are people who are basically very into not having them. And, um, when they did that, uh, they did a short seven day study, where they fed people who had stayed away from it two to seven times the amount of the FDA's maximal acceptable daily intake. Why which would I they find, do it that way? <laughs> I think they, they, they wanted an effect. They wanted a strong effect. Wait, so, how, can, but that's how many, terrible science. How many milligrams of saccharin were they giving them per day? Yeah, so I, it is in here, and I'm hoping I can find it quickly. It's milligrams. Is it I, 120? Jesus. Does that sound right? No, I think... It was like five mil. I think it was one milligram per kilogram, which if you were, that'd be like a hundred. If you were like a two hundred pound person, that'd be like eighty milligrams. Don't quote okay. me on that. And the, but they Cause were because it, it's not that much, you know. If because I read something about it being one hundred twenty milligrams, so I wasn't looking directly into the article uh -huh. when I saw that that figure. Um, but one hundred twenty milligrams is about three packets of sweet and low worth. It's really not that much. It's not that much, and so they they kind of spiked these people and gave them two to seven times the maximal recommended dosage. And after seven days, they saw these exact same markers in these people who never ate or avoided artificial sweeteners. They saw these exact same uh, shift in the microbiome to, um, to this glucose intolerance model that they saw in the mice here. That I find pretty interesting because like you said, a lot of people aren't just going to eat a couple packets. So eating several times the recommended amount is not like uh let's say someone had you know a, a couple big gulps uh a day <laughs> this would probably fall within that two to seven times you know range so it's mm -hmm. not like they're they're doing a thousand times and getting some artifact effect here and so they did see an effect they are seeing these same exact changes okay hold on though whoa settle Please. down there they saw an effect in four out of seven people right that's a terrible study. <laughs> if someone said, hey, I found this four times out of seven, you'd be like, that's ridiculous. All of the human stuff here is, um, is I would call it pilot uh, preliminary data. Not, it's, and it's not, not science worthy. No, that's not necessarily true. Carolina is more of an expert on nutritional studies. But as long as they say it, Christian, I would say that's fine. Like... It's not like they hit it and they said, oh, this proves that artificial sweeteners blow up your gut bacteria. Well, okay, but they did say that because the title of this article is Artificial Sweeteners Induce Glucose Intolerance by Altering the Gut Microbiota. That's the title of this paper. Well, but, the, but no, the, no, 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 that, that paper title is accurate because they did find an effect of no, all they, the artificial <laughs> sweeteners they tested and they, they did focus on one. You may you may argue no. that this is a grandiose title, but there's nothing inaccurate about no, it. No, they didn't find that because they focused on saccharin after the very first initial step, which had nothing to do with glucose intolerance. So they didn't find any of these markers in any other of these artificial sweeteners except for saccharin. They, so 
they shouldn't have said artificial sweeteners induce glucose intolerance. That's not what they found. Not even close. Let me see here. Put that saccharin exerted. Well, some, of this is a, some of this is a is a my bitch about the way science is portrayed. But it's also I think that their title is completely and totally misleading. If you read that title, your first assumption wouldn't be, well, saccharin caused problems in mice. Well, they say, so after 11 weeks, and this is with all of them, it says all three mouse groups that consumed water, glucose, or sucrose featured comparable glucose tolerance curves as compared to the artificial sweeteners. It looks like they were at least finding initial markers, not, not that's why they focused on the saccharin because they didn't want to repeat it in all the other models. But but these are all different compounds. They're well, completely different molecules. So so you bring up my point, which is my closing remarks here, uh, kind of good and bad. I think this is a very good initial study. I figure, I think tying this directly to the microbiome and showing that at least in this one case, this one artificial sweetener um, is, is causing this glucose intolerance or at least correlated with it. I find that very interesting and it should be looked at further. To your point, and this is one of my criticisms I have here, Artificial sweeteners aren't like normal sweeteners in that they're all variations on the same thing and your body's seeing them for a million years and it deals with them in very specific ways. These are grossly different compounds. Even though they taste sweet on your tongue, uh, sucralose looks nothing like uh, like saccharin and saccharin looks nothing like stevia. They are wholly unique models as far, uh, molecules as far as your body's concerned. So your gut bacteria will probably deal with each one of these in a vastly different way because they're nothing like the other molecules. That is a big concern. I, I couldn't agree more with these. B, most of these studies, 90% of what they did here were in mice, not human. But routinely with drugs that we put into people, they'll, fa they'll fail fra phase three clinical trials, which is they invested billions of dollars. It's shown to work in mice. It's shown to work in monkeys. It's shown to work in healthy humans. And now we're testing on sick people and all of a sudden everything falls apart. So, so they're... The idea that you, you cannot say because it's a, a mouse, it's going to be like that in human. Again, it's a good starting point to move forward. Also, this is one paper. This is not a scientific consensus. That's probably the most right. important thing anyone could take away from this. Interesting initial research. Uh, and it, just because it's in nature, this argument from authority uh, doesn't, we just saw that that stem cell paper got pulled a couple months ago. By no means because it's in science does it mean that this is going to be a perfect uh, a, a paper that nobody can, nobody can, you know, say is not accurate. So you got that going for it too. And, and, um, and I would say above all else between Christian and I, we are both highly biased people. Um, I don't think you should <laughs> listen to everyone, either of Everyone us. is highly biased. Highly biased. I'm Every biased because I'm trying to take a lot of uh, chemicals and artificial sweeteners out of my diet. Christian doesn't care. Christian drinks uh, his giant diet pepsi every single day and is fine with it and doesn't think it's an issue so we have two people on opposite ends of the spectrum who have a vested interest ultimately in what the research says and yes we are both biased is scientific and in and, and is 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 but that's not to dismiss to that either of us have any valid points i mean because if we just talk about the literature we have a lot of studies that show that things like sucralose don't have these kind of effects on people compared to sugar drinks and that switching from one to the other, switching from sugar drinks to non-sugar drinks, can cause a significant reduction in diabetes risk. So what they did was they took, they just sort of jumped that bullet and took the only sweetener that doesn't have a lot of that kind of research, because nobody uses it anymore, and they ran with it. And I think that that's a little disingenuous, because I'd really love to see the sucralose data on, done this way. Maybe that's even what made me more upset is I would like to see that actually done. But they did a seven-person trial with sucralose, and there's been trials in, with 10,000 people that have found a negative correlation. So I find it hard to believe just from a scientific standpoint that their seven-person trial is even publishable in nature. I think that that's a, I think that's a, a stretch. Right. There's definitely more research that needs to be done. Scott, was there a portion of this study that took a look at transplanting the gut microbiota between the mouse model and the human? Uh, Ew. Or did they just look at mouse Gross. to mouse? 
Is this some sort of weird sexual thing you're talking about? I think now? Richard Gere no. did that back in the nineties. No, I just I just think that, that 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 would be kind of a little bit more convincing if you could show that. So what they would have to do is, and this is very doable, uh, is they would have to take one of the. Well, see, the problem is, is that they kind of they wiped out. They put on. They put the mice in high antibiotics, and well. But before that, like if they could just take the impaired gut microbiota uh-huh. and culture it, and, put, and then you know essentially give that poop pill to a human. They and could see do that. Well, and they induces, could do it between humans. We don't have to get all bestiality right. on this. Um, but but just, <laughs> but just to kind of show that the their experiments in mice are could potentially be valid in humans, that the gut microbiome is similar, and that you know glucose metabolism works. So, in a similar way between the two animal models. These are all the next things, and it's a, it's a great question to ask. And I, I truly believe either nature came back and said, really interesting research, you better do some stuff in human, or or we're not taking it because uh, nobody cares about mice. Or the human thing was a reviewer thing. It was, a, it was a reviewer thing, or they had some insight, and they just said, we want to make sure we can get this in nature, so let's do a correlation to human. Because it didn't, I won't, it, it kind of seemed tacked on. Mm-hmm. Um, at yeah. the end. And so I would agree there's a decent chance that a reviewer said, "If man, if you just showed some correlation in human, this would be the best study ever. And so they said, quick, let's. what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Because these weren't in-depth studies either, which means that, which means that they really probably didn't want to do it. <laughs> and they said, what's the fastest way we can show a correlation in human? Hey, look, we already have this data set over here. <laughs> let's start with that. Let's, let's let's measure some people's yeah. glucose. Let's measure their hip to weight ratio. BMI, great, perfect. We can do that in a couple months. And then, you know, so they were just trying to push their way through it. Yeah. Okay, I have another question too. This one's kind of more for Christian. How, how would the microbiome affect your glucose tolerance in the first place? See, and that's a, that is a fantastic question. And the answer is, it could be in multiple ways because everybody has a different one. Well, not everybody. There are biotypes, biome types. And so we did that one article about people who have a drug tolerance because of their microbiome, but it's only in people who have a specific type of microbiome. Other people get the drug just fine while other people's microbiome eats it. So... In order to compare microbiome effects in humans, in mice, in anything, you're going to have to demonstrate that there's some sort of consistency between their microbiomes because you could be looking at an interesting effect in a particular microbiome type, which is why only four out of seven had a problem. Well, we don't know that's why. But um... but no, what I'm saying is in order to say – this is what's causing it in a microbiome sense. You have to look at their microbiome. They did, though. So I, what I completely glossed over on the paper okay. is that there are, I would say, a good third of the paper is talking about the specific micro, the specific bacteria um, in the commonalities. They all have their long bacterial names, and it, it was right. it, it was unintelligible to me and I think most people who do not study bacteria what – that actually meant and the importance of those specific bacterial strains and all that sort of stuff. But my understanding was is they did find commonalities, and it's not like it's not like Christian and I's gut biome is um, is like someone from outer space versus someone here. There are vast similarities. Yeah, there but are... it only that drug thing is one mutation in one bacteria. Right, and and that can make all the difference in the world. I agree. Uh, and and. I would have liked to have seen. Did they genotype them? Uh, they did genotype bacteria. I, oh no! I that I think the only geno. I think the genotyping they did was to identify bacterial strains. I don't know if it was to actually look at compare genomes. That uh, that's probably way down the road for these people because they were just trying to identify the bacterial strains, not if one of a of an SNP from one to the other would actually. So, so but so so we don't know the mechanism of how glucose metabolism is affected by your gut bacteria i can't answer that they may um uh, yeah i I have no idea i don't do um uh what not what's the word um uh the act of microbiology well i don't do microbiology Hmm. which is bacteria and i also don't do the whole digestive tract metabolism 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 Mm -hmm. excuse me i know very little about metabolism so i would not be the person they discussed a lot of that. Well, they, yeah, I, I'm guessing something must be known about that. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't even even have thought to look at the microbiome as leading to changes in right. glucose tolerance. Um, okay, so, and just a 
clear this up. Was it the antibiotics that resolved the glucose tolerance problem, or was it the fecal transplant? So when they did the anti, when they did the um, the antibiotics, the uh, they no longer saw the glucose intolerance effects. And they were using that to say that when we and then and then they transferred the fecal matter from the saccharin eating mice to normal mice, and they saw that same model. That was them trying to convince us that this was in fact taking place in the bacteria. The glucose intolerance was at least initiated based on the bacteria eating the saccharin or consuming, you know, ingesting the saccharin. So. So that that's all that was saying. And yes. Got it, got it. So you didn't so so what would be interesting to see is if the mice that had been consuming saccharin, if they stopped consuming saccharin and they had a fecal transplant from, you know, a healthy mouse that didn't have the impaired glucose tolerance, if it would resolve on its own without the antibiotic therapy. Yeah, or more importantly, what if they just stopped feeding them saccharin and right. they, and then checked their biome their gut biome a month? later are they yes are you back to normal or is that impaired gut biome with you for a very long time exactly in any case it seems like if this were applicable to humans that even if somebody has been consuming artificial sweeteners for a long time and has impaired glucose tolerance because of it it sounds like they could either just take an antibiotic and clear it up or if they do the research down the road maybe just cutting out the artificial sweeteners would resolve it or hopefully that would resolve it yeah you don't yeah, want to give a broad like spectrum one. gram negative antibiotic that, <laughs> that, Definitely that not. tears you up no that's bad yeah um yeah so i guess the takeaway message is we can't really say whether consuming sugar is better than consuming artificial sweeteners it seems like right now the only precaution is you know you might want to consider cutting back on artificial sweetener use if anything uh, if you're concerned uh, about it, uh, it, you at least have some basis of science to cut back, but by no means is this definitive, and it could very easily be turned over with additional research. The, anytime you have – this is one of those almost religious-type arguments people have about are, uh, unnatural things going in your body versus natural, and when you get to this religious-type level of fever, fervor, you it's so easy to just anyone to take their – their pile of evidence on their side and say you're an idiot for doing what you're doing and the other group to do that. So it's so important to just take really tightly controlled studies and just let the science show itself over over a couple dozen papers because uh, it, it's we've seen this with the whole GMO thing and all this stuff where it's just it's it there's so many bad studies have been done. It can say whatever you want and, and hopefully we can avoid that here. Yeah, it's just it's just a problem with the way that people are going to perceive this. And this was published in a basic science journal. Nature is, is a fantastic science publication, but this wasn't a clinical trial. It wasn't a clinical paper. Yep. Um, and the headlines are just ridiculous. You know, you this this has been like taken to every media outlet and, and named all kinds of different things. You know, yes, artificial sweeteners cause obesity. Artificial sweeteners cause diabetes. Uh-huh. You know, it's they've really kind of run with it. So I think it's a really important for the public to know that their move should not be to go from using artificial sweeteners to now just loading up on sugar. That is definitely not the message. And that I, was, that I, I fear that question. that's what people are going to take away. That was my question to you was, does we shouldn't be dumping ourselves full of, you know, refined sugar products in as opposed to sucralose because of this study. No, and so and surprisingly, that's what I hear all the time. Before this study came out, that's that was pe- the argument that people had. They're like, well, you know, we've heard that aspartame causes cancer, and that you know, artificial sweeteners make you diabetic. So I'd rather just drink, you know, regular sodas and juices. <laughs> like, no, the bottom line should be, you know, drink more water and maybe cut back on sweeteners in general, whether they're artificial or, you know, sugar. Yeah. Anytime you have one chemical that is being blamed for doing cancer, disease diabetes, all these things, your spidey senses should start going up because there's a good chance it's a smear campaign against something. I am yeah, I'm, I'm desperately trying to find out how much we eat per each one per year, and I'm having a hard time. I will, mm. I'll do an update next week. I'll find out how much we eat and how relevant saccharin really is to the overall scheme of things here. Um, and, awesome. you know, to complement what Carolina said about the the article being run off into the media nature itself did a a an a, like a write-up on their own article and they called it sugar substitutes linked to obesity no that's what nature said 
That's the nature review of this It hardly paper. makes a mention of obesity. It doesn't say anything about it, Glucose really. Glucose intolerance, I mean, yes, is correlated with obesity, but I'm a little unclear on what, what comes first and what, yeah, what causes what. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> it's ridiculous. All right. Ugh. Well, let's put a fork in this one. Um, okay. Delbert, are you taking us home, or have you checked out? Ah, uh, yeah, baby. <laughs> we hope this week's super sexy beta sandwich science podcast satisfied your wild science desires. Mmm. Christian gave us the lowdown on mRNA changing adult fly sex. Yeah, fly sex. You dig it, baby? Dell discussed all that naughty failed research should still be published. And you like sugar? Well, Scott and Carolina gave you lots of sweet info on the latest research claiming fake sugar causes diabetes by changing the way sexy gut bacteria work. If you still have more science needs fulfilled, check out our Twitter and Facebook. Mm. (laughs) It burst on creepy this time. (laughs) (laughs) It was totally stuck. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. We're at Beta Sandwich. Please follow us there on the Twitter machine. And uh, on Facebook, we're Beta Sandwich Podcast. That's it. Sweet. Say goodbye. Bye. 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 Woo-wee. Awesome. Good Good stuff.